So reading is taken from 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to chapter 2, verses 2, which can be found on page 1225 in the Red Bibles. That's page 1225 in the Red Bibles. One John chapter one verses one to chapter two verse two. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we will make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks very much, Ellie, for reading for us. Um, Ellie was praying earlier on about um, resolutions that we might have made. Um, Perhaps you have. Um, And maybe alongside, I don't know, what have you you resolved to do? Um, I'm going to read more books in 2020. Do more exercise uh, in the year ahead. Um, What if your resolution was to to go deeper with God, to to connect with him more richly? Uh, Suppose that were a person's uh, resolution for 2020. What would they do? Where would they go? Uh, Of course, the world has lots of things to suggest to us uh, if we ask that question. Um, uh, Some will say that, uh, well, you can encounter God just about anywhere. God's to be found in everything. You can find him in the beauty of music or the loveliness of a sunset or in the... Uh, tenderness of, uh, of an intimate relationship. God's in all of these things. Just enjoy him in the world. Uh, an idea that says that God is present in everything. Others, of course, would push in a different direction. They'd say, no, no, no that's not right. Now, God is much more elusive and mysterious. It's very, very hard to discover him. Uh, never mind, connect with him. God, they will tell you, can't be found in a material world because God is spirit. 
uh, and he is separate, distinct from this material world. Connecting with God will always be mystical and otherworldly and will involve a, a strange mystic experience for you. Now, actually, those two kind of different angles, different ways of thinking about connecting with God, um, reflect two very different ideas about how the spiritual world and the material world connect. Because in one, the spiritual and material are kind of intermingled. Um, They are as one. In the other the spiritual and the material are more like oil and water. They can't mix. You you can't connect them at all. And in order to get to the spiritual, you need to leave behind the material. Why do I tell you this? You may well be asking at this point. Well, I tell you this because uh, the the themes, the issues that are being addressed in the letter that we're going to be studying now for three months. We're going to spend three months in uh, John's first letter uh, that we begin with this morning. Uh, And uh, the big issues that sit behind are all about this question uh, of how the spiritual and the material go together, uh, of how we encounter God. And before we kind of dive into the first four verses, that's all we're going to look at um, this morning, uh, just that sort of opening paragraph. But before we get to those, I kind of want us to to try and orientate a little bit, try and make sense of uh, where this letter is coming from. If you know anything um, about this letter, then you may well know that it's got something to do with assurance. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, it's a letter that we read in order to, so that a Christian believer can know whether they're a real believer and whether they really have eternal life. And as this verse from the end of um, the letter suggests, that, that kind of looks about right. Um, here we are just towards the end of, of the letter. And John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, and that kind of suggests, well, okay, so this is going to be a letter that helps us uh, to have some assurance, um, to know that we're the genuine article as a Christian believer. But then when you begin to explore some of the content of the letter, that begins to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, uh, Because if you you look at chapter 2, verse 3, we read this. Here's one of the things that John has to say. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And then suddenly the letter's not quite that reassuring, is it? So I only really know him if I'm keeping his commands. What about the times that I don't keep his commands? Because there seem to be some of those alongside times when I do manage to keep his commands... So is it really quite as reassuring as it seemed? Um, And then a few verses later on, uh, we read this. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And it feels even more uncomfortable, doesn't it? Is that my measure? 
Uh, can I be confident of being a Christian only if I'm living as Jesus did? Well, an awful lot of the time I don't manage to do that either. Or uh, look at this uh, final example, chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And you think, well, actually, I was a little bit grumpy with somebody this morning. Didn't feel very overwhelmed and full of love for all my brothers and sisters in the church family when I arrived this morning. And the idea that these things kind of reassure me feels a little bit awkward. Because it looks as though the things that John is saying give you assurance are stuff that you do. Um, That you keep commands. That you live like Jesus. That you love um, one another. And I would have thought that if I needed assurance, assurance would come from what God has done for me, not what I do for him. So what is this letter driving at? I think imagining that it is a, a kind of academic treatise, kind of um, written in order to say, look, um, here, are, here are ways of having assurance in a kind of abstract sense, isn't terribly helpful. Like all of the other letters in the New Testament, this was written at a particular time in history to a particular situation in history. Um, And in order to understand the letter well, it will help us to try and get an idea of what was the situation that caused John to think that this particular letter needed to be written in this particular way. Imagine uh, the next Sunday. You arrive arrive here at, at church and you discover that half of the members of the church council and four of the staff team and several dozen members of the church congregation have all left Christchurch. And they have done so after issuing a statement that describes uh, the way in which they are leaving because they fundamentally disagree uh, with the teaching of the church. Find that a little bit unnerving? There might be a little bit of an atmosphere as we gathered as a congregation if that had just taken place. It would be unnerving, wouldn't it, to find that there was a split in your church community and that people who you'd thought of as fellow members of the church family, fellow believers with you, were suddenly not only leaving, but also saying that the things that you believe and that your church is teaching are wrong. Well, that pretty much was the situation that John found himself needing to write into. Uh, We don't get much of the backstory, but you get enough to see that that was what was going on. Um, I've put the verses up on the screen to stop you flicking around, but if you want to flick over, then it's just the next page, uh, chapter 2. And verse 18, um, where uh, Paul, uh, well, sorry, where John uh, describes uh, what has taken place. Uh, right into these believers, John says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. You can see that he's not 
mincing his words. Very blunt, very bold. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us. But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. A schism has taken place. People have left. And to an unsettled, unnerved bunch of Christian believers, John is needing to write and say, I need to make clear that the reason that these people have left and the things that they are saying and the the way that they are understanding the Christian faith is wrong. Not just a little bit wrong, antichrist wrong. It's that strong, that severe. The issues that John is addressing couldn't be more important. By the second or third century, the, the false teaching which seems to have its roots here had kind of developed into something that came to be known as Gnosticism. Um, a, a false teaching that denied the idea that the spiritual could really be involved in the material. So, so for, for, for a Gnostic um, point of view, spiritual was good, like that. The material, bad, evil. So if you want to be spiritual, then you need to leave the material behind. You need to escape from it. Because the material doesn't really matter. It's only the spiritual that matters. And, and some of the ideas that that produced were ideas that clearly Jesus couldn't have been God come in human form. Because how could God, who is spiritual, possibly involve himself with the material? That wouldn't work. Wouldn't be right. So instead of believing that Jesus was God on earth, these false teachers would have said, it only seemed like that. That the Christ, the divine, kind of just sort of rested on Jesus, the, the, the man, for a while, but stayed separate from him, and certainly left him uh, before he died on the cross. That would have been the thread of the false teaching here. Now, you might be wondering, isn't this, this is all a bit small print, fine print? Is this really matter to me? Um, it matters hugely, actually. We'll see as we work our way through the letter that it has implications for all sorts of things of great importance. Uh, it has implications for, for the way that you love, the way that you view the world in which we've been placed, the, the way that you think about right and wrong. Uh, we'll see how uh, it affects the entire basis on which you think you're saved. Um, but uh, what I want to do uh, for uh, the last bit of our time is just show you how these ideas get played out um, in the first uh, four verses. Um, so if uh, you've still got it there, uh, come back to that opening paragraph. Because it's, it's a funny beginning, isn't it? It's not like the beginning of a normal letter. I mean, uh, most of the letters in the New Testament, you get a little bit of an introduction, sort of, you know, this is Paul writing to, to so-and-so, greetings, etc. Uh, John just dives straight in. Um, so it's very abrupt. 
Um, and he dives right in because the issues at stake, I think, are so grave and so huge. Um, we're going to see three things um, here in these, uh, in these first four verses. Um, as we return to my opening question, where would you go to meet with God? How would you, how would you get closer to him? Um, well, John's answer for us would be to say, well, you do it by believing in the historical bodily incarnation of Jesus. You do it through the witness of the apostles. And you do that because that will lead you uh, to a joyful fellowship with other believers and with God himself. Um, so just see how those three things, um, briefly, uh, come out of those opening verses. First, John would say to us, believe in the historical incarnation. Christmas was good, wasn't it? You like Christmas? I love Christmas. Love all the stuff about it. Love all the bits around the edge, all the paraphernalia of Christmas. It's lovely. But, but the reason it's lovely is not because of the periphery. The reason it's lovely is because of the, what's at the very heart, the truth, the Christian truth that is right at the heart of Christmas, which is the truth that John teaches here. Let, let, let me read these opening verses again. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Here's the seedbed for what Christians believe about God. See, Christianity doesn't teach that the spiritual and the material are one and the same, really, and that you can find God anywhere. Christianity doesn't teach that. But neither does Christianity speech that the, that the, the spiritual and the material are unconnectable at odds with one another. Instead, what Christianity says is that the spiritual has invaded the material. That the, in, in the incarnation, God has formed a bridge. God has taken on human form. That's what we mean when we talk about incarnation. Um, carnation, carnivore, um, fleshing, infleshing. God has infleshed himself. God, who is spiritual, has taken on flesh. And that has huge implications. It tells us that this material world matters. It's why we bother with the homelessness project. It's why we bother with the besom. It's why we'll have concerns about abortion. It's why we'll have concerns about the environment. Because the material matters. 
God has shown it matters by choosing to enflesh himself. The spiritual is not something that we need to escape from the material to find because the spiritual has entered into the material. So it has big implications for the way that we think about our world, about our own bodies, and about our creation. You, You can't miss the emphasis on the physical here, can you? John says... That which was from the beginning we heard, our eyes saw, our hands touched. This was a physical encounter with the word of life. And you can immediately sense also the links with John's gospel. He kind of begins them in the same way, doesn't he, with that, with that beginning phrase. Um, his gospel and his first letter. Uh, both picking out that what he's writing about is the one who was from the beginning. All of this means that, for a Christian, our faith is a kind of evidential faith, if I can put it like that. It is rooted in events in history. If you could could somehow prove that Jesus had never existed, if you could prove that he never died, if you could prove that he never rose again, Christianity would collapse. It would be undone if you pulled out those historical realities. It's not true of other religions. You could prove that that Buddha had never existed or that Confucius never existed. It wouldn't really matter because what matters is the Buddha's teaching. What matters is Confucius's uh, teaching. His ideas. But with Jesus, that's not the case. The Christian faith is bound up with the historical facts because of this conviction. Not that Jesus was simply a mouthpiece who produced some teachings which were important for us to follow, but because Jesus was God made flesh. So believe, first, in a historical incarnation. Believe in this history. Believe in these events. Uh, They are crucial uh, for the way that the Christian faith unfolds. Uh, And then secondly, um, believe in the apostolic witness. Um, You can't miss the emphasis there. That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. Who is the we here? Because sometimes a writer can say we and mean, you know, both me the writer and you the reader. It's that kind of a we. It's all of us. Um, But in other cases, and this is one of them, the we is distinguished from the reader. And John is writing here to say, we, the apostolic band, we, the witnesses, we saw, we heard, we touched. You and I have never touched Jesus, so we're not included in this. We are the people to whom John is writing. It's only the apostles who saw and heard and touched. And that's why when 
the apostles needed a replacement for Judas. You remember that in the beginning of Acts? They, they had a think together and they thought, yeah, we need somebody who's been with us from the beginning. We need somebody who has had that personal, first-hand encounter with Jesus. Someone who's seen and heard and touched. Because that's what an apostle needs to be able to do. To be able to witness and then to proclaim to this Jesus. That's the key word um, in this opening paragraph. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a long sentence in the original. Um, and it builds and builds and builds until it hits the proclaim word. That's the, the, the verb uh, that the whole sentence builds to. That these people who'd seen and heard and touched, and they proclaim. They make known this reality of God appearing in human and form. They tell us that you can trust it because we were witnesses to it. Now, if you're, if you're on, the, on the money at the moment, and if you're thinking to yourself sort of carefully, um, you will think that last sentence was funny. You can trust it because we were witnesses to it. And you think, you didn't say that very well. You should have said we were witnesses to him. Because you think I've been talking about Jesus up to now. But actually the original doesn't use him. It uses it. It's slightly odd, isn't it? We think we're talking about Jesus and they were witnesses to Jesus. That's not the way that you would expect John to have written it. So why does he use the it word? And I think the answer is because the message about Jesus that they are proclaiming is completely woven in with the person of Jesus that they are proclaiming. You know, Jesus is the word of life. And, and what you say about Jesus is the gospel. And the gospel is Jesus. That The two are so closely woven together. You can't tease them apart. We encounter Jesus in the message that the apostles teach. And that matters because you can't drive a wedge between Jesus, the Jesus of history, and the Jesus of the scriptures. In other words, it won't work for somebody to say, um, I, I love Jesus and his teachings, but I'm not that keen on Paul. I, 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 love, I love the things that Jesus has to say in the Gospels, but I think Paul takes it a bit far in his letters, and I, and I don't, don't, don't really go with those. It's not possible for a person to say that. Because if you set aside the Jesus that the apostles present to us, you are setting aside Jesus. The, the only access we have to Jesus is the witness that the apostles give us to Jesus. Do you see that? You have to stick with the scriptures. Because in the scriptures, we get the apostolic witness. If you set those aside, you've picked out a Jesus of your own making, not the witness that the apostles tell you about. So believe in the historical and incarnate Christ Believe in the apostles' teaching about him. And do those things in order, finally, that you might share in the joyful fellowship that this creates. Uh, that's what we find at the, the 
final part of this paragraph. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, verse 3, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Fellowship's a funny word, isn't it? Sort of Christian word. I think we try and avoid saying it here, but, but probably we do sometimes, and we say, you know, um, do stay after the service um, so we can enjoy fellowship together over coffee. It's a funny word, isn't it? Enjoy fellowship. What was that? I, mean, I thought we were just going to talk. But no, 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 we're not just talking. No, we're having fellowship down there. Um, I mean, how is that? You know, I, I visit somebody in their home and we have a cup of coffee together and we're being friends. Uh, that's because they're not a Christian. But I go next door and I find myself with a Christian and we're having coffee and now we're having fellowship. I thought they, they felt very similar. Uh, but one's fellowship and one's just coffee. We overdo the fellowship word. I mean, the, the original sort of fellowship word just means to be, to be in partnership with or to have something in common with, to have a shared interest with. You could, you could use this word in order to describe being in business with somebody and being in fellowship with them. It just means that kind of a, a sharing of something with somebody else. So we're in fellowship with others because we share the same faith in the same Christ. And in that fellowship, in that partnership, we find joy. Of course we do. Because together, we have found fellowship with God himself. It's funny how that last sentence or two goes, isn't it? Because you would have thought when you go through verse 3, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship, you'd expect him to say, with God, wouldn't you? But actually, he goes first to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, us the apostles emphasizing again that the way to end up in fellowship with God is to be in fellowship with the apostles and all that they have to tell us about God. And through that, you have fellowship with God the Father. And in that, joy is completed. Nothing that John wants more, nothing that brings him greater joy than to see that other people share with him fellowship, partnership, knowledge of, relationship with the eternal God who's made himself known in Christ. So here we are. Beginning of the letter, beginning of 2020, this letter is going to take us to the essentials. It's going to take us to Jesus. And it will say to us, treasure these things. First and foremost, treasure Jesus. He is the place that we come to, to know God. Secondly, treasure the scriptures. Treasure the Bible. This is where we encounter him. This is where we're taught about him. And then thirdly, treasure the fellowship that that creates. Fellowship with God, relationship with him, and relationship with one another. Treasure these things. Treasure Jesus, treasure the scriptures, treasure the fellowship that exists as a result. 
So my challenge to you, um, therefore, um, for these next three months, would be to read this letter. Sorry if that sounds pedestrian. But if what we're being told here is true, and it is, that the way that we encounter Jesus is through the apostles' teaching, then nothing could be more important for us to connect with God than to read the Scriptures. So read this letter. It's not a straightforward letter. It doesn't develop in a sort of linear way. Uh, You you might guess that from having read through John's Gospel last year if you were here. Um, John doesn't write in in a kind of linear way. Um, I've heard the letter described as a bit like climbing up a spiral staircase. You go round and round and round. You come back to the same things again um, uh, because you come round the staircase and then you see the same view. Um, And then round you go and it appears again. But like a spiral staircase, it's taking you up. And as you revisit the same ideas, you understand them more deeply, more richly. So read it. I'd love to encourage you to read it. Uh, We're going to spend three months in it. It's not a straightforward letter. Um, Why not read it once a week? All the way through. Um, Just in one sitting. um, Once a week. uh, Read through John's first letter. If you do that then in three months' time, we get to the end of the letter, you'll have read it 12 times, and I think all of us will have understood it better. And more importantly, because we'll have understood the Scriptures and the Apostles' teaching better, we'll have understood Jesus better. And we'll see the way that it teaches us about all sorts of really important things about the way that we live uh, our lives. Uh, Let me um, lead us in a prayer as we finish. Uh, We thank you, uh, our Lord God, for uh, the message of this Christmas that we have just celebrated. Uh, This extraordinary, um, unique, uh, and profound message uh, of the way that you, uh, the eternal God, uh, stepped into history, uh, stepped into human flesh uh, in Christ. Uh, And we pray that you would help us so to understand uh, uh, what it is that uh, Jesus uh, came to do, uh, what it is that him appearing in human form means for us, uh, that the way that we uh, deal with right and wrong, uh, the way that we relate to one another, the way that we relate to this created world, uh, the way that uh, we love one another uh, would be affected uh, by Uh, these things. Uh, Help us uh, to uh, to spend time uh, in the teaching uh, of the Scriptures. Uh, Help us uh, to take on uh, this ambition of of reading and reading and rereading this letter uh, till we understand uh, the Lord Jesus uh, more clearly. And we ask it in uh, his name. Amen.